We are going to be in the book of Esther, so you can go ahead and turn there, Esther chapter 1. Now, not normally would you try to preach through an entire book in one sermon, but we're going to try to do that today. So um, get ready. Esther is a really cool book. I've really enjoyed getting to study it because Esther, there is so much going on in there. If they were going to make a movie, you know, this would be the movie to make out of any book of the Bible. It's got everything in it. Um, there's a lot of history, too. This is what reminds us that this Bible wasn't just a bunch of stuff people made up. This stuff really happened. You know, I mean, there's stuff that we're going to read about today that you've heard about because not just because you knew about the story of Esther, but because you know a little bit about history and the Persians and the Great Empire and things like that and some of these names like Cyrus and, and stuff like that. So these things really happened, and, uh, and that's the history. So today, you know, we've been studying on the champions of the faith and talked about some of the great people throughout the Bible. One of the things that I'm always reminded of as we've been doing that is sometimes we, we think that our champions of the faith are those people that went all the way through life and they were just pretty much perfect. But we're reminded that that's not really the case at all. In fact, God chooses to use people who are, who are sinful, people who are irrelevant, people who are small and weak, and he uses to, these people for his purposes, which gives us great hope uh, the book of Esther, there's a lot of stuff that goes on leading up to this. I, I'm going to try my best to quickly give you a history lesson on how we got to where we are with the book of Esther, okay? So, the Jews, right, God's people, they had not really been listening to God. He was upset, and he allowed them to be captured, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar, remember that name? And so the Jews went and lived in exile in the great Babylonian Empire for 70 years, okay? 70 years, they're living in exile because God allowed it to happen to his people. Now, the great Babylonian Empire was conquered by the, anyone know? The Persians, okay? The Persians. And there was this great king called Cyrus the Great. If you've ever known that name from history, Cyrus the Great, first great king of the Persian Empire. And he was a good king. He did not believe in slavery, and so he let the Jewish people be free. Okay, so a lot of the Jewish people, especially the most committed ones, they left and they went back to Jerusalem, and that's when they rebuilt the temple. If you start, so this is where we're kind of at in the story of the Old Testament. The Jews went back. And they rebuilt God's temple, if you remember that. Now, not all the Jews left. And so, throughout this great Persian empire, which stretched forever, it's one of the greatest empires in history, there was about 50 million people in the Persian empire, around a million people, million soldiers in the Persian army. I mean, this is a great, great empire, okay? And the Jews were spread out all throughout it. So many people left and went back to Jerusalem, but a lot of them didn't. They settled where they were. In fact, some of them moved to the city called Susa in Persia, which was where the palace was. That was like the, the great uh, capital of the Persian kingdom, the city of Susa. Lots of money, lots of opportunity for a good life. And so the, some of the Jews even settled there in Susa. And today, our story, the family of Esther, was one of those families that had settled there in the capital city of Susa. Okay? So Cyrus the Great, he dies, has a son, he dies... And his grandson is King Xerxes. Have you ever heard this name? Xerxes, the great king. Now, that's his Greek name. In our English Bible today, we're going to be hearing the name Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. 
This is the same guy as King Xerxes, okay? King Xerxes, if you remember, you know there's been, he had the greatest, he was the greatest of the Persian kings, okay? The richest, they had, the empire was the biggest under his reign, and there's lots of famous battles between him and the Greeks. You ever heard of the 300 Spartans? You ever, ever seen that movie? That king, that King Xerxes, that's who we're talking about today in the book of Esther, okay? Ahasuerus, that's his name. So he had lots of battles with the Greeks. He kept trying to overtake them, the Greeks, and their rebel ally forces and all that kind of stuff. Eventually, it didn't happen for him, and a guy named Alexander the Great... You heard that name before? Alexander the Great conquered King Ahasuerus and the Persians, which began the great Greek empire. Okay? And then eventually they lost out to the Romans. Are you with me? So that's where we're at today, the great Persian empire. There's a lot of stuff going on, and I'm not a history major, but that's where we're at. So King Ahasuerus is a great king. His empire is really rolling, and he decides for, he's going to have this six-month time of banqueting and planning and preparing to take over the Greeks, and that's what's happening for 180 days. And they're, He's kind of showing off because they're really big, and he's planning. They're making, everyone's there, the governors, the princes, and all the army guys. And at the end of this six months, he feels really confident that they're going to be able to beat the Greeks which I just told you doesn't happen, but he feels confident before it happens. So he decides he's going to throw a seven-day feast banquet party, okay? And that's where we're going to start today in Esther chapter 1. So look at chapter 1, verse 6, and, and this is just a little bit of an explanation of what that seven-day feast or banquet was like, okay? There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king." So basically, this is just a seven-day drunken party, all right? I mean, everybody is enjoying themselves. There is no rule about how much you're allowed to drink. There is no rule about anything. We're going to show off how great our empire is and party for seven days. A lot of fun. Okay. So at the same time, um, Queen, the Queen Vashti is her name, Vashti, Queen Vashti, she throws a party for the women at the same time. Now, I don't know if this was because women weren't invited to the guys' party or if because it was so big there wasn't room, but anyways, Queen Vashti, she throws her own banquet for the women of the palace there, okay? Now, on the seventh day, on the seventh day, they've been, they've been having a lot of fun, okay? And on the seventh day, when he's had his the Bible says when he's full of his drink, the king Ahasuerus decides he would like Queen Vashti to come and show off herself to all of his buddies, right? He's like, man, I want, I want to bring in my good-looking wife. You know, all my friends are here, the princes, the governors, and all the army guys were here. And it would be really cool because the Bible says Vashti was a good-looking woman, okay? And he says, tell her to get over here with her royal robes on and everything and show off herself so that my friends can see what a good-looking wife I have. Well, Queen Vashti says, no, I'm not going to come to your party. Now, you should know that back then wasn't like today. Women didn't say no to, to the men. 
I realize that that's, that's okay now. But for the sake of today, back then, the king wasn't used to hearing somebody say no to him, not even the queen, okay? If the king said, hey, come in here and show off to my buddies, you, you just said yes. Well, she said no. Now, this made him a little bit angry. And he, he got together with some of his, uh, you know, the guys that would help him make decisions, people that would give him some, some advice and stuff like that. And, and, and the Bible makes it sound like they were a little bit worried about a women's rights movement starting because they said, you know, if, if everybody in the, in the empire finds out that the queen can say no to the king, we're going to have women all over the place telling their husbands no and doing whatever they want. And that's not okay. So king said, yeah, that's not good. We got to do something about this. So... The king, he makes a decree, that's a law or whatever, that can't even be undone. He makes a decree and he says, women, say yes to your husbands, do what they tell you to do. Not even the queen can oppose the king, okay? And they send it out to the whole empire. Every province got this message and they wanted them to also know, oh yeah, Queen Vashti, she's not even the queen anymore because of what she pulled, okay? So he demotes the queen for saying no, yeah. Now... He has a reputation of having a little bit of an anger problem. I should tell you, one of the things we know about King Ahasuerus is one of those battles where he was going to try to defeat the Greeks, they had to cross water. And he told them, well, we're going to need to build some bridges because I got you know, a million guys in my army and we're going to have to go over these bridges. Before the bridges could be finished being built and they could cross over them, a storm came and wiped out the bridges. Well, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, he decides they were built inadequately, gets all the engineers together and chops all their heads off. Yeah, so this guy has problems. That's not even the worst of it. He sends soldiers into the ocean and has them whip the ocean 300 lashes with whips. <laughs> then he sends other soldiers into the ocean with shackles, throws them into the water because the ocean was insubordinate, and he has them stab the ocean with red-hot, fiery irons. This is the guy. Kind of crazy. So he kicks the queen out. Now, in chapter 2 it says, after these things. Some of those things were uh, King Ahasuerus trying to keep going to all these battles with the Greeks, okay? And he would win some, lose some. Mostly didn't have a whole lot of success against them. And in chapter 2, um, we, we pick up the story where he remembers, oh yeah, um, it's been some years now and I still don't have a queen. Let's figure this out. So chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So these guys get together and say, hey, king, I got an idea. Let's get all the best-looking women in the, in the empire. Men come in, and whichever one pleases you the most you can make her queen. He goes, hmm, that's a good idea. So let's, let's do that. And so all these people, they went out into all the kingdom. And now remember I told you there was 50 million people in the empire at the time of King Ahasuerus. So we can just guess that maybe there was around 25 million women to choose from or so if we just split it in half. Now Josephus, he's a historian guy, he wrote in his book that there were 400 women brought to the palace. 
Okay, 400 women. This is going to be a huge beauty contest for these 400 women. It's like The Bachelor. And <laughs> it's like that. And these women, they, they weren't even going to see the king right when they first got there. First, they were going to have to take a whole year to get prepared. Okay, now, I know some of you ladies take a while to get ready in the morning. But these ladies, they needed a year because they were going to have beauty treatments. They, they, went, they had to look good, smell good. They probably had some sort of a preparation like how to act before the king. Because remember, these were just normal peasant people. So they probably needed to know what was acceptable, what was not when you were in the, in the palace and things like that. So it, a whole year, right? I don't know what you could do to yourself in a whole year. But these women probably looked and smelled really good by the end of it. Now... One of the ladies brought in these 400 was Esther. Look at verse 7 in chapter 2. They're talking about Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. She was an orphan. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So, these women come and they begin to start seeing the king. They would go and spend the night with the king. I know that sounds bad, but that's what they did. They would spend the night with the king. The next morning, they would go back into the pool of the 400 women. And the deal was, if he called her out, then if he liked her enough, that woman would be the queen. Now, during that year and some time that they were there, Esther, this, this irrelevant Jewish orphan began to earn the favor of the people that were kind of in charge of this bachelor program, okay? And she was beautiful. There was something special about her. People, they tended to like her, so they started to give her the women, put the women around her that would be in charge of her beauty points that were the best at doing hair and makeup and stuff, right? They put the best people around Esther. And then it came time for Esther to go before the king. Esther goes in, she has her night with the king, and... Now, you've got to imagine, 400 women, everything starts to kind of blur together, I would think. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of women. But, so it, it wasn't, so, you know, some stuff was going on in there, but it wasn't just that. Because Esther caught his attention. Out of all the women, there was something special about her, and the king fell in love with her, and he said, Esther's going to be the new queen. So, look at what it says. 2 verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Out of 400 women, this irrelevant Jewish orphan, Esther, was chosen to be queen. That's God's providence. Are you with me? God has a plan. So if, if Esther was going to come out, you know, Sid's been saying, if, the, if these people would come out of the grandstands of history and they wanted to say something to us, I think this is what Esther would say. She would say, you can trust in God's providence. You can. 
Sometimes we try to take control of things. You know, we, we've been studying for a long time now the four G's. God is great. I don't have to be in control. Sometimes we want to manipulate things to get the outcome that we think would be best for us. But Esther would say, you can trust in God's divine providence. So Esther becomes queen. Now, we're going to jump to chapter, I mean, chapter 2, verse 21. In verse 21, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, is hanging out at the king's gate, okay? Apparently, this is his job. We don't know if he already had this job before Esther became queen or if this is something that she got for him But once she became queen because he wanted to hang around and make sure Esther was safe. You know, he had raised her. He had taken care of her. They were cousins, but she had no mother and father. So Mordecai is hanging out by the king's gate and listen to what happens. He overhears a conversation. Verse 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai just happened to be hanging out in the right place, right, at the right time. That's God's divine providence. He hears this, commu this communication. These two guys, they were angry at the king for whatever reason. Maybe they liked Vashti and they didn't like what he did to Vashti. I don't know. Maybe they wanted their friend to be chosen as queen and instead Esther was chosen. Whatever the reason, maybe they didn't get paid enough to be the guards. I don't know. But they wanted to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And apparently they had the um, availability to him that they could have done this. You know, they had access to the king. They could have made this happen. Mordecai hears about it, saves the king, and the Bible says it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The Persians recorded everything, everything, which is why we know so much about them and their empire and their history and their reign. They recorded everything. The king knew also something like this would be important, right? It would be important to reward loyalty to the king just as it would be important to uh, you know, punish the disloyalty. Those two guys that they came up with that good plan they thought they had, they got hung. So they recorded it in the book of Chronicles. Now, chapter 3, we get introduced to the next main character of this story. His name is, anyone? Haman. That's right, Haman. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about Haman. The Bible here, we're at about three times, it, it keeps saying Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. Why is that important? Let me take you back. 500 years before, okay, King Saul is king of the Jews. Remember King Saul? And the Amalekites had tried to defeat the Jews, and King Saul conquered the Amalekites. And God told King Saul, kill everybody. Get rid of the Amalekites. Because 500 years before that, God had said that one day the Amalekites would be extinct. He was going to wipe them out. So now here comes the time for that to happen. And what does King Saul do? He doesn't kill their king. You remember their king's name? Agag. Agag. Haman the Agagite. Directly from that line. Now, because of King Saul's disobedience and some other problems he had, God removed him from the throne, right? And it was Samuel the prophet that came in and actually hacked Agag to death. Okay? This is Samuel, the, the Jewish prophet, one of the Lord's people, 
came and hacked Agag to death. Now, Haman, the bad guy in Esther, was an Agagite directly from that line, and he would know his family's history. Are you with me? He would know that it was a Jewish prophet who had hacked his ancestor to death. He would know that. Now, to make things worse, Mordecai, Mordecai, Esther's cousin there, working there in the king's palace, he was a Benjamite directly from the line of King Saul. So before we even get to here where the hostility erupts, they already don't like each other, okay? There's already a rivalry going there in this family for centuries, okay? So here we are, chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So Haman was one of the, the king's top guys. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, that's a problem. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, which would mean all the Jews. You with me? God's people completely wiped out. Now... Haman goes and he talks to the king, and he tries to convince King Ahasuerus, hey, these Jewish people, they're, they're not good for you. You know, they've got their own little rituals, their own history, and there's too much weird stuff going on with them. I think we just need to wipe them all out. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to some other stories? Remember the story of Daniel? Remember that? And, and the king got tricked into, remember that? And this is almost like the exact same thing. So, so Haman is trying to tell the king, Ahasuerus, we need to just get rid of him. What does the king do? Sure, whatever. He takes his signet ring off, ring off, gives it to Haman. Haman goes and makes a law, a decree, and he stamps it with the king's ring. Okay, so this is done. And he says, and he sends out these letters. Okay, so what do the letters say? Let's look at this. Chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers, like Pony Express, to all the king's provinces... With instruction, listen to this, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now, this, this is everyone. I mean, they sent these out. They would go as far as they could. They would send it to that province. They would send it to the next province, the next province. And remember, I told you at the beginning, there were Jews spread out everywhere. But even the Jews back in Jerusalem, Haman said, we got to go all the way back to Jerusalem and just wipe out everybody, get rid of them completely. So as you can imagine, there was great confusion and mourning. I mean, even if you didn't have a problem with the Jew that lived next door to you, you just got this letter that said you're supposed to kill your neighbor on, you know, the, the, the tenth, which, which month was it? The, thir- the 12th month, right? The 13th day of the 12th month. And you're supposed to kill everybody in that household, women, the children, everyone. This is what, so lots of confusion, lots of mourning going on. The Jews were just distraught. You know, where, where did this come from? We're God's people. He's supposed to take care of us. Now, all of a sudden, um, there's nowhere we can go far enough because the Persian Empire stretches so far. There's nowhere I can go. In the 12th month on the 13th day, people are going to kill me and my family. 
Mordecai gets the message too, because he was there, you know, in Susa. This included all the Jews, even in Susa, at the capital. Chapter 4, verse 3. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes, this is a thing where there was lots of bad stuff going on, or something bad happened, you would go to mourn, you would show how terrible it was. You would, instead of putting on your nice, comfortable robe or whatever they had, you would put on sackcloth and put ashes on you, okay? It was an outward display of your mourning. So Mordecai, he does this too, and he doesn't just do it in his home. He goes up to the king's gate and starts making a scene. Sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate, mourning and, and, and wailing, and, and word gets back to Esther, hey, your cousin Mordecai is down here at the gate going crazy. You know, what should we do? So, Mordecai tells, Esther sends some of her people, some of the people around her as the queen, sends them to the gate and tells Mordecai, hey, get some normal clothes on and just calm down a little bit. And Mordecai says, no, listen, you go tell Esther, she's got to go to the king and tell him what is going on, that he can't kill all of us or we're all going to die. Now, people go back to Esther and they tell Esther Mordecai's news. You need to go to the king and tell him what's going on. Esther's a little bit afraid. Why? You didn't just show up at the king's room and knock on the door and go, hey, king, can we talk for a minute? Not even the queen could do this, okay? Let's, let's look here. Chapter 4, verse 11. She said, go back to Mordecai and tell him, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So we know that King Ahasuerus, he had lots of wives, probably. He had these concubines. And Esther says, look, I hadn't even been invited to see the king for a month. He hadn't even, he hadn't even wanted to see me. You think I'm just going to go up there? He's probably just going to cut my head off. So she says, you know, Mordecai tells his peop her people this. Verse 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. He calls her for some courage. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God's divine providence. Mordecai believed that even if Esther did nothing, that relief for God's people would come from somewhere else. But in the meantime, you know, he and his family and Esther and some other people might die. And then a very famous part of verse 14. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he calls for courage. Esther says, okay. Verse 16. She tells her people to tell Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women here at the palace will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther doesn't mention prayer 
But for the Jews, there was no fast without prayer. So Esther and her women there, and Mordecai and all the Jews he could find, they fasted and they prayed to God for three days and nights. Esther is an interesting book because it's one of two books in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. But clearly, God's fingerprints are all over it, right? So they fast and they pray. Esther's afraid, but she says, I'll do it, and if I die, I die. Chapter 5, verse 3. Esther shows up at the king's place, and the king says to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. God's divine providence answered prayer. They fasted and prayed for three days, not knowing if Esther would die or not. She shows up, and the king doesn't only say, hey, come on in. He says, what do you want? I'll give you half the kingdom if you ask for it. Esther was special. There was something special about her. The king, he, he knew this, and he offered her half his kingdom. Esther's like, well, slow down. I don't want half the kingdom. I was just wondering if we could have a little dinner, a banquet, with you and Haman and myself. Would that be okay? Apparently, her plan is she's going to tell the king what Haman has done. Verse 5. Then the king said, Well, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half the kingdom. It shall be fulfilled. He keeps wanting to give her half the kingdom. <laughs> but then something weird happens. Verse 7. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow. And I will do as the king has said. Something happened. The, the timing wasn't right for whatever reason. I believe it's God's divine providence. But Esther changed her mind. She hit the brakes and she said, I'll tell you what, come back tomorrow and let's just do this again and, and then I'll tell you what I want to tell you. So, that night, Haman feels really good about himself, right? I mean, the king thinks he's great, tells other people to bow down to him. He's been invited to a banquet with the king and queen. No greater honor than to eat with the king and queen. And now he gets to go and do it again tomorrow. He's just thinking, man, they think the world of me. And so he leaves the palace. And on his way out, who does he run into? Mordecai. And this just sets him off. Just the sight of the Jew who won't bow down to him like everyone else. Haman the Benjamite. He's just set off with fury and anger. He goes home and decides, that's it, I've had enough Tomorrow, I'm killing that guy. I know that he's going to die on the 12th month and the 13th day anyways, but I can't wait. Tomorrow is the day. In fact, I'm going to have these guys put up new gallows, tall ones, so that everyone can see Haman hanging from them. Okay? So he goes home that night. He's got this plan to kill Haman tomorrow, hang him on the high gallows that he just constructed, and everyone will see it. And he goes to sleep, and he sleeps really good because he thinks, I've got a, I've got a great life. Meanwhile, in the palace, for whatever reason, I guess, you know, pressure of being the king, 
King Ahasuerus not sleeping so good that night. He does an interesting thing. He says, go and get the royal records and come bring them and read them to me. You know, I'm thinking he, he must think like counting sheep or something, you know, like maybe it'll be so boring that I'll fall asleep. So anyways, they go get the royal records. Now remember, he's been king for more than seven years, and the, the royal records went on before he got there. So there's a lot of records to be read from. And whoever the royal record reader that night was just so happened to turn to the account of Mordecai saving the king's life. God's divine providence. You believe that? Chapter 6, verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said... What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Out of all the royal records, that's what they read. God's providence. So, the king says, Well, we need to do something for this guy, Mordecai. Nothing's been done for him, and he saved my life. Now, it's morning, so I don't know if he was up all night or what, but Haman has made his way back to the palace after his good night of rest. And he's going to tell the king, hey, king, let's go ahead and kill Mordecai today. He's driving me nuts, and I've got some nice gallows set up. We'll do it right there, and it's going to be a good thing. So the king goes, well, hey, go find somebody out in the, in the, in the, in the square there and bring them in. Let's go treat Mordecai right. Well, they go out there, and who do they find? They find Haman coming in. So Haman comes in, and let's look. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Haman... What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? <laughs> Haman goes, man, this can't get any better. Now the king wants to honor me in another way, right? He thinks it's him. Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> so Haman says, he thinks about it for a second. Verse 8, king let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman goes, yeah, that sounds about good. I think that would be great if they would do that for me today. Verse 10. Then the king says to Haman, well, then hurry. Take the robes and the horse, just as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman... He goes out and gets Mordecai, he dresses him up in the robe and the, and the crown and puts him on the king's horse and, and goes through the square of the town and he says, Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. So, Mordecai is a little embarrassed, not really sure what to think. And so he goes home. He's looking for a little bit of solace, I'm guessing. And uh, he tells his family and his wife what all has happened, exactly what happened. 
you know, I was going to kill this guy today, and now I'm marching through the town, leading the parade for him. He's a Jew. He's a Benjamite. You know, I can't stand it. What should I do? Verse 13, chapter 6. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They said, listen, if this guy is a Jew and the king thinks he's great and you want to kill him, you're on the wrong side of that fight. You're not going to win. And amongst all of this stuff that's going on, knock, 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 it's the king's people to get Haman and bring him back to the palace for that banquet that's supposed to happen with, with Esther today. So here he is, rushed back to the palace. And uh, Esther, for her second banquet, chapter 7, verse 3. So it's the queen, it's the king, and it's Haman. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? Can you imagine Haman? He's sitting right there. <laughs> he probably didn't wear a tie, but he was probably loosening it if he did have one. He was probably like, you ever seen in the movies? They, he was probably taking whatever alcohol was on the table and downing the whole thing, right? He wasn't sipping his wine anymore. He, at this point, he was like, here we go, I'm in trouble. And Esther just goes, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman, well, then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now this, King Ahasuerus, the guy with the bad anger problem, he got, he got a little angry. He was so mad, he got up and left the room. Went out to the garden. I don't know if he just needed a cuss or wanted to hit the wall or what. He, he didn't know what to do. He was so angry. You know, here's this guy that I've been telling everybody to bow down to, and now he's, he's set a plan in place, tricked me, to, and, and he's going to kill my queen. Now, while he's outside, you know, trying to decide what to do, um, Haman decides maybe this would be a good time to beg the queen for his life. He gets down on his knees, and, and, he, and he stretches out, you know, he's, he's going to beg Esther for, for his life. And in verse 8, as this is happening, it looks like he's reaching out to grab the queen. Verse 8, the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. That means they were taking him out to kill him. Okay, so what a difference a day makes. <laughs> right? I mean, Haman, is that funny? Seriously. I mean, he, he, he was on top of the world just a day before, remember? And now today, it's over. In fact, the king, when he finds out that he had just made new gallows to hang Mordecai, 
he sends them and tells them to hang Haman on those gallows, right? This is just, I mean, you can't, this is like a funny movie, you know, where the bad guy ends up falling because of his own problems, you know, and, and he gets up, ends up getting killed by his own device. So, we saved everything. Except that, remember that when the king puts a decree into law, it can't be overturned. So still, on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews are going to be wiped out. So what happens? Well, they're going to need to make a new decree. So Esther, loved by the king, Mordecai actually ends up being exalted by the king. He says, you guys are going to need to help me make a new decree then. And this time he gives his signet ring to these guys, the good guys. So they make a new decree, a law, and it says on that day... All the Jews are allowed to protect themselves. And if someone is to come and try to hurt them and their family, they can kill them instead. Okay? So they can't take back the law that said on that day all the Jews can be killed. But they're going to put a new law in place that says if you try to kill the Jews, you'll probably end up dead too. Now, over the next few months, Mordecai becomes more and more powerful in the palace and people begin to get afraid of Mordecai because he's a Jew and he's in charge up there at the palace. He's second in command. So, what happens? Chapter 9, verse 3, they've sent out all the letters, right? And they've told them about the new decree. Chapter 9, verse 3, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So that day, the Jews weren't wiped out. In fact, the enemies of the Jews were wiped out. They even went and killed Haman's sons on those days. And more than 75,000 people were killed that day. Not God's people. God's people's enemies. It's March 7th, that was the date, 473 B.C. And that day established what's called to the Jews the Feast of Purim. And even to this day, Jews all over the world still celebrate the Feast of Purim for those two days in the spring. Let's read about that. Chapter 9, verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do. And what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is to cast lots. That's how he decided what day the Jews would be destroyed on. Pur, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. 
So the Jews were going to celebrate that they had been delivered from extinction. God's plan would not be thwarted. His people would live on. The promise of the coming Messiah would still be in place, right? Because that was God's plan. The king continued to love Esther, put Mordecai's second command. So not only were the Jews not wiped out, they were actually even elevated in the kingdom. Chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. God's divine providence. God's name is never mentioned in those ten chapters. But his presence is manifest in every single detail, maybe more than any other story in Scripture. There are no miracles in the book of Esther, but the entire book is a miracle of God saving his people and his divine providence. Not Haman, not Satan using Haman could stop God's plan could break the Abrahamic covenant with, that God had made with Abraham and his people, could stop the, the coming of the Messiah and the salvation for all the Jews and, and all people. God's love for his people will always be fulfilled. Great story. And we've made it through an entire book of the Bible this morning. But, but what about for us? If you're, if you're going through life... If you're in struggle, if you're in harm's way, if you're trying to fix things around you, understand this, that there is over, below, in, and around your life a divine architect who is ordering every single detail. And if you belong to him, and if you're part of the covenant of his love and his family, he is going to accomplish his perfect will. And you can rest in that. The Lord is always on his throne. God is great. I don't have to be in control. No matter how crazy this world gets, the Lord is ordering everything for his glory. Sometimes we get so concerned and worried about the badness going on around us. That stuff is going to happen. And just know that God is not surprised by any of it. He's ordering every detail God's divine providence is something that we can trust in. I love how part of the story, Esther and Mordecai and the people around them joined God with this. They joined him in prayer and in fasting. They didn't just sit back and go, well, God's in control, we'll see what happens. They were part of what was going on, and God used his people for his mighty works to accomplish his plan. They knew that if they did nothing, he would raise up someone else, but they chose to be obedient and allow him to use them. So for us, when God calls us to be used, and he it says, it's your turn, it's your time, are we going to be obedient and trust in his divine providence that he can use someone even like me? Or are we going to say, no, God, not this time. You better raise up someone else. We ought to be excited to be a part of his mission, excited to be a part of his plan, excited that he would choose someone like us to be used for his good. Esther would say, you can trust in God's divine providence. This morning as we get ready to leave, I think that's our prayer. 
God, would you give us courage the way Mordecai called for courage from Esther? Would you give us courage to trust in you, to follow you, to be a part of your plan, to be able to let him use us for his good, to not just sit on the sidelines. The reason that all these people we've been studying are listed in that chapter in Hebrews, the champions of the faith, was because they said yes when it was their turn to be used. Don't you want to be part of that kind of chapter? When your life is over, don't you want people to say, now this guy, this woman, they were great because when it came time for God to use them, they were all in. That's our prayer today. Let's ask him for that. Father, we love you. Thank you for the book of Esther. Thank you that in a book where your name is not even mentioned, that your clear divine presence presence is all over the book. Thank you that in times of good, times of bad, struggle, times when we are clueless as to how we're going to get out of them, we can trust in your divine providence. Father, I pray for courage that when you call our name and say it's time, that we would be ready to say yes, we would be obedient to you. We would be part of your plan, not running from it, not trying to set up things to happen the way we should, but trusting in you that all things will happen for the good of the people that you love, the people who are part of your family. Thank you that you've called us to that family. Thank you that thousands of years ago through a an irrelevant Jewish orphan named Esther, you saved your people, allowing your promise to Abraham and his people to continue on the coming of the Messiah. And because of that, now we can know you and be part of that family. Thank you for that. We long to serve you, Lord. Allow us to be part of that, part of your army, part of your people that you're using to accomplish your mission here on earth. And we thank you for Jesus and the cross. Amen.